Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, and Matthew 23, verses 23 through 26. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may be clean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, you can grab a seat if you haven't done so yet. Um, thanks again for joining us. It's my honor and privilege to open up uh, God's Word for us today. And hey, we can be honest, the scripture reading is a little intense this morning, right? A little confrontational, so hopefully the uh, sermon will be a little more uh, uh, grace-filled. We'll get to the hope of the gospel at the, uh, by the time we get to the end of this, but uh, excited to open up God's Word for us today. Um, if you have uh, just joined us this morning, we are right in the middle of a sermon series that we have entitled Ambassadors Courageous Witness in an Age of Tribalism. And uh, this is a series where we've been examining some of the bigger issues of our day and culture, and particularly the issues that seem to be the most divisive or the most controversial. And we're trying to make sure we understand what the scriptures have to say about them and what our calling in the church is as we seek to declare and display the good news of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to be examining justice and the weightier matters based off of Micah 6 and Matthew 23. Now, this conversation about justice, it tends to be pretty divisive in the church right now uh, because there seems to be some disagreement between Christians of various kind of theological leanings, how we should approach issues of social justice, for example, or systemic injustice, or all of the other conversations that are happening in our world right now. You have on one end of the spectrum uh, those who are all in on bringing attention to these issues and getting involved and trying to bring about change, while you have on the other end of the spectrum uh, those who say, well, you know, it's great, but it's not really the church's job to do that. What we really need to be focusing on is preaching the gospel and making disciples. Now, that's an overgeneralization, but all churches are sort of falling somewhere along that spectrum of jumping in on these justice issues of our day or saying, and now let's focus on preaching the gospel. Meanwhile, while that conversation's going on, we look around at our world and the issue of justice is front and center, isn't it? I mean, after all, if we just look at what's happened in our country this year, cries of no justice, no peace are ringing from the streets. Lawmakers are proposing new legislation that deals with these issues, and corporations of all kinds and sizes are putting out statements, aren't they? They're, they're letting people know where they stand on these issues. And if you were just to look at the New York Times bestseller list from the last three months, you would realize that this is obviously a big deal for our culture today. 
And so as the church tries to figure out what's our identity in this, what's our responsibility, as the world around us is talking about it nonstop, my hope today is that we might realize what it means to step into this moment with faithfulness and courage because we bear the good news of the gospel. You see, as this is going on, I'm reminded of what uh, Mark Sayers has so wisely observed. He's a pastor and theologian in Australia, and he's noticed this, that a secular society, so a society that's trying to build itself on a non-religious basis, especially in the West, it desires the kingdom of God without the king. He says the whole form of secularism is desiring the kingdom without the king. He's arguing that the post-Christian West is a project of trying to move beyond Christianity all while feasting upon its fruits. And I would argue that we maybe see that statement on this issue of justice more than any other one. I mean, the desires of a society crying out for justice is going to look a whole lot like the kingdom of God, but without acknowledging the king of justice, it will only go so far. And so my fear is, is that we're having these disagreements in the church, and we might actually be missing an opportunity to bear witness to the king that is missing in this whole conversation. So here's what I want to do today. I want to enlarge our vision here at the King's Church a little bit as to what God and the scriptures have to say about this issue of justice. Because this conversation is too often happening with our Bibles closed and our eyes off of Jesus. And the whole point of this series is to make sure we are opening our Bibles, we are looking to Jesus, and we are speaking into this moment with the hope of the gospel. Now, let me be totally clear up front. I am going to overwhelm you with scripture today, okay? It's not always the best strategy for you to digest a sermon and understand it. I'm unapologetically at the beginning of this time telling you I'm going to throw a ton of Bible at you, okay? The references are all listed when we post the resources this week. They'll be there. You can go back through and follow along. You can get some coffee if you need to get some coffee. Okay, we're going to jump in. But as we do so, I hope that we can bring some clarity to this mess. So here's our main idea today from Micah 6 and Matthew 23. Christians are called to do justice as a reflection of God's character and an expression of his grace. Christians are called to do justice as a reflection of God's character and an expression of his grace. But before we jump too much into that, let's pause and let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you have uh, told us what you expect and what you require of us, and you have done so through uh, your word. And we have a chance this morning to open it up, to study it, to seek to understand it. And so I pray today that you would uh, remove any barriers in our lives from simply submitting to the authority of your word, seeing and treasuring Jesus and the good news about him that is found there, and that you would bring us to faith and repentance because of the kindness you have shown us in Christ. So I pray right now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. May you bless our time in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider justice, I want to do three movements this morning. I want to look at justice in God's character, justice in God's people, and then justice in God's son. So God's character, God's people, and God's son. And let's begin with God's character. When you think about God, when someone begins to describe God to you, what attributes naturally come to mind? I mean, I want you to try that exercise right now. When you think about God, what is that God like that you are thinking about? I mean, do we think of him as loving? 
It's probably an answer most of us would give. Do we think of him as merciful, powerful, creator and sustainer of all? What is it for you? What are the attributes that pop into your mind? What I want to do for just a moment is appreciate that God over and over and over again reveals himself as a just God, that he is a God of justice. It is a theme over and over again in his self-disclosure of who he is. I'm not exaggerating when I can tell you. We could point to hundreds of verses right now, but I've tried to pick four or five, okay? So let's just walk through them. Just listen to the words of Scripture on this. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Deuteronomy 32. God the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 146, 7 through 9, he executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Just one more with me, Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For it is the Lord your God. He is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now I'll stop there, but you get the idea. Over and over again, God introduces himself as a God of justice. This is who he is, which is a pretty incredible thing if we appreciate how he defines that justice. I mean, let's just take that last passage, Deuteronomy 10. God here does what we would expect God to do. He says, listen, I am the God of gods, the Lord of lords. I am great, mighty, and awesome. I mean, that's how gods introduce themselves, right? I mean, even the false gods would be known for their power over fertility or over the water or over uh, lightning and thunder, right? Think of Zeus or Thor. I mean, that's what you would want listed on your business card, right? I mean, if you were the god of gods, wouldn't you want people to know that, right? This is exactly who I am, which makes the second half of that passage so unexpected. The all-powerful god over all the other gods, it says he executes justice for who? For the fatherless for the widow, and for the stranger. If God had a business card, that would be the subtitle. I am the God who executes justice for the most vulnerable and the most weak of a society. He takes up the cause of the lowest. And we saw this last week as we considered how Jesus identifies not with royalty when he comes to earth, but with the least of these. God has a particular care for those who are vulnerable, poor, and helpless. This is part of what it means for God to be a just God. Eric Mason has helpfully observed the following. He says, more than half of the books of the Old Testament speak of justice as an attribute of God and a responsibility of his people. We can't know God without understanding his heart for justice. He is a just God. He is the source of all true justice. Seeing God in this way helps define and root justice in the Lord. To ignore justice is to ignore God. Now, justice isn't God. We don't worship justice, but his justice is one of his key attributes. 
You see, he is exactly right. We have to define and root justice in the Lord. It has to be the starting point for the Christian. It roots this desire to see what is right brought about in the unchanging and eternal character and nature of God himself. And listen, when we try to create justice as a culture or a society separate from God, we'll see exactly what's happening in our world right now. So I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but if justice and righteousness and these attributes don't bubble to the surface at some point, we might not be worshiping the God we think we are worshiping. We might be worshiping a creation rather than the God who has revealed himself over and over again as a just God. Okay, so that's who God is, then what does that mean for his people? So if God is a just God, what does that mean for justice and God's people? Well, that's the backdrop for the famous words of Micah 6. Let's read that again, Micah 6, 6 through 8. The people here said, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, the people here, they're making extravagant proposals as to how they, a sinful people, might be able to come before a holy, perfect, and just God. So they propose some pretty absurd sacrifices. I mean, they even get to the point where they offer up their firstborn. Should I give what is mine in order to deal with my sin? And God says, no, 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 no. Here's how he responds. He says, I've already told you what to expect. I've chosen you to be in covenant relationship with me. I require you, by the way, not recommend, not if you have time for it, get around to doing this. I require that you do justice, that you love kindness or goodness, and you walk humbly. Now, that makes perfect sense in light of all those verses we just read, doesn't it? If this is who God is, and Israel was to represent that God to one another and to the world, then of course they would need to be a people of justice. If God is a God of justice, he then requires his people to be a people of justice, which if the people of Israel were paying attention should have been obvious. It seems like they were trying to wiggle around this call to justice and to kindness and to humility, and instead they were offering up all of these other sacrifices. It's like this, you know when you tell your kids to you know, do something around the house, to carry their own weight for a moment, to maybe take out the trash, to clean up their room or to do the dishes, right? You tell them that and then you know, an hour goes by, you're noticing it's kind of quiet, you're like, all right, nothing's getting done yet, right? Parents, try not to look too directly at your teenage children, it's okay, right? Nothing's getting done yet and uh, all of a sudden they come back to you and they say, okay, I understand you want me to do these things, but what if I didn't, right? What if instead I spent my time doing all these other things that seem pretty flashy and cool? Well, what's the problem there? You've asked them to do something and they've distracted themselves with all these other things. The people of Israel were the very same way. He has told them what he expects of them, but yet they come back with a list of unrelated things, thinking that that's going to satisfy the Lord. And he is rebuking his people here. They are failing to do what they knew was required. And by the way, if you're thinking, okay, 
Maybe it's just one or two verses. Maybe they just forgot. Okay, if you were to search for the different Hebrew words for justice, just in the Old Testament, you're going to find more than 500 times where God emphasizes to his people that they are to live with justice and righteousness. 500 times. And the very laws and structure of Israel were meant to promote this. Okay, it's worth considering this briefly. Everybody with me still? Hanging on? Head nods out there? All right. The people of Israel were meant to build a structure in a society around justice and righteousness. Okay, and there's some different categories that I want us to see for a moment. All right, the first is a punitive justice or a retributive justice. This is the idea of punishing wrongdoers and protecting victims of wrongdoing. This is the idea of creating a system of retribution when someone commits an offense and spelling out exactly what the consequences are. So Leviticus 24, your favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus, right? By the way, I'm gonna convince you today you ought to be reading Leviticus because these passages are all coming from it. All right, Leviticus 24, verse 19. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, we can debate how that applies today, of course, but what God is doing is saying there needs to be clarity on how you deal with punitive justice. If you commit this offense, what ought to happen to you? And how is that just and fair and not too little or too harsh? See, throughout the law, there are all sorts of ways you make sure this is done. If you kill someone's animal, if you steal their property, if you, in the middle of the night, improperly move your fence line, which is the people of Micah, by the way, what do you do in the face of that? All right, now, often we, as good Americans, we love the punitive justice system, don't we? I mean, when we think of justice, we think of criminal justice. We think of the courtroom. We say, yes, justice was served, right? This is one of just a small part of what justice meant in God's people, okay? So it's one part. So that's punitive. Secondly, structural or commutative justice. This is the most common way justice is used in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word, mishpat. Let's all say mishpat. It's fun. Ready? Mishpat. You don't have to roll. You don't have to do the whole, like, gurgling to do Hebrew, right? It's an easy word, okay? Mishpat's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. This is the concept of treating others fairly, decently, and rightly within a society. This has to do with the structures of a culture that guide and inform what is our relationship to one another. Okay, so consider once again Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor because I am the Lord. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. By the way, you see how God himself roots the justice of the people in himself. I am the Lord, and that is why you ought to do this. Or simply put, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what book of the Bible that shows up in, by the way? Leviticus. Don't we all love Leviticus now? Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting Leviticus. Now, very importantly, if we're to apply those, pa- if you lived in Israel and applied those passages, that means all justice is inevitably social. It's not just right rules, it's also right relationships in outlining specifically how do we relate to one another. I'm aware that the term social justice has all sorts of theological and political baggage today. 
but we cannot have justice that's not social, at least not from a biblical standpoint. So yes, we should be aware of how social justice detached from the gospel deviates, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mishpat, that Hebrew word, deals with social justice. So that's the second one. Okay, we have punitive and then structural. Number three, we have restorative justice. This is speaking up and advocating for the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the overlooked. This is the idea of advocacy. Justice in Israel required that you proactively, not just sat back and saw what happened, but you proactively looked for where oppression and victimization and things that were happening that should not be happening, and then you speak up. We'll change it up from Leviticus. Okay, Proverbs 31 says this, verses 8 and 9, open your mouth for the mutes, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this, he says, the righteous or the just, specifically in Proverbs, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. But the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. You see, God evaluates whether or not his people are being just by seeing how they treat the most needy, the most vulnerable among them which in the Old Testament over and over again is the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. Who are those that might miss this structural justice? Who might be overlooked? Who might become a victim? And how do we proactively speak up for them? And the beautiful thing is, by the way, if Israel lived this way, how would those people function? They would not be concerned about their safety. They wouldn't be worried about being treated as a human being they wouldn't even worry about being taken advantage of because the people were pursuing this restorative justice. All right, that's number three. Number four, if that wasn't enough, you ready for number four? Generous justice, generous justice. There are numerous laws and practices for Israel that seem to require a very uncomfortable, open-handed generosity. If I can just quickly summarize a few, there's a law in the Old Testament in practice called gleaning. And what that meant was landowners in Israel, they were instructed in these laws not to maximize their profits off their land. Now, we're good Americans. Can you imagine? You can't maximize your profits. No, you have to leave on the fringes your crops specifically for the poor. So that way the poor can come and get what they need, the basics of human life. They were to purposely forego profit to make sure the hungry and the poor were cared for. Okay, then you had these things called Sabbath years. Every seven years, the people of Israel were not even to farm the land. They had to let the land rest. And then as they did that, they were to forgive all of the debts against one another. Just canceled, right? Can you imagine those of you who have a long-standing relationship with Sally Mae? Gone. In Israel, no more debts. If you had slaves, they were set free. And then it gets even crazier than that. Every seventh cycle of seven years, okay, that's 49 years, good math here, right? On that 50th year, right after that, this was called the year of Jubilee. Not only did you do the exact same things you did in the year of the Sabbath, but the land that you owned that was given to Israel by the Lord was to go back to its original owners. So no matter what happened over those 50 years, no matter if you were successful and the people around you wasted their money, guess what? it all hits reset every 50 years. That'll mess with our American consumerism a little bit, won't it? 
I mean, that's what kind of generosity the Lord described in the Old Testament. When the Lord says he requires his people to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, that's what it practically looked like. So the people at the time of Micah, they should have known all this from God's law. I mean, you see how extensive that is? This is not a minor theme. This runs through the whole Bible. Now, it's right to say, okay, Pastor Ian, we don't live in a theocracy where God is in charge and we follow those laws directly. That's, that's fair, right? That's where the complications come. But let's back up for a minute. What does all of that reveal about God's heart for justice in his people? Yes, we might disagree on how this is applied and how we engage and where we do and where we don't, but if that's the structure God desired from his people, what does he require of us as his people? What does he desire us to be about? And are we seeking to live in line with that? And I think that vision for justice, it helps us see all the more why Jesus is so confrontational with the Pharisees, doesn't it? That's the backdrop for justice. But yet we get to the New Testament and Israel's religious leaders, there's a confrontation point because they have not done justice or loved kindness or walked with humility. Let's read it again, Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If he's not quoting Micah 6.8, he's certainly alluding to it. You've neglected these things. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. A woe is a pronouncement of judgment. It's about a coming doom because of unrighteous behavior. And hypocrites is what he calls the Pharisees. A hypocrite is the idea of putting on a mask. Now, I know there's lots of conversations about masks today, right, in COVID. I'm not about to touch that from up here, okay? This kind of mask was used in a theater by an actor, these actors, they put on a mask in order to play the role of someone that they are not. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees, the leaders of the people of Israel, from teaching them the law, and he says, listen, you're just actors. You're claiming to be holy and righteous, but you're really not. You know what you really are? You're a fraud. You guys are frauds. And the reason why they're frauds is because they have neglected the matters of justice and mercy. They have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They've been following all the laws about tithing, I mean, all the way down to their spice racks. Something they should have done. Jesus says, these things you ought to have done, but not to the neglect of the far bigger issues. See, their focus on tithing in this way, it gave them a sense of confidence before the Lord. But this practice was as light as these spices are on a weight scale. And so he says, you Pharisees, you have a massive blind spot. You think you're following all the way down to the bottom, but you have missed what's most important. You are straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's being sarcastic here. Both a gnat and a camel, they're unclean animals in the law. But he says, listen, you Pharisees, you're filtering out your water or your wine. You're making sure you don't swallow just the smallest little gnat, all the while you're gulping down a camel as the main meal the largest animal in this portion of the world. He's saying, you have majored on the minors and you have minored on the majors. Now let's step back for a minute. 
before we cast judgment at the Pharisees, why would they neglect the weightier matters of the law? Why would they neglect that? They know the scriptures. They've memorized them. They know them backwards and forwards. How could they possibly neglect the weightier matters? Here's my proposal. When injustice happened in the people around them, it didn't impact them directly. Right? The Pharisees were the elites of society. They were the religious elites. They were the cultural elites. They were in a position of privilege and power. They had, as Israel's leaders, helped to create a system where they benefited that functionally, according to Jesus, robbed widows and laid a heavy burden on people's shoulders who could not bear it, all while leaving their own status, their own comfort, untouched. See, they failed to see justice as an attribute of God and a responsibility of his people. Now, brothers and sisters, that ought to humble us for a minute, shouldn't it? Where might we be doing the very same thing? Where have we gotten really dedicated to just minutia rather than pursuing the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Where have we staked our justification before God on things that allow us to disregard those weightier matters of the law? Where have we settled in very comfortably with whatever that might look like so that people's struggles and difficulties and issues of injustice never actually touch us, never actually are dealt with? See, if I can just speak very pastorally for a moment, one of the things that concerns me is that we've gotten really good in the church at analyzing and critiquing secular or political movements for justice in our world today. I mean, you go and Google it right now, you can find thousands of blog posts. Don't we all love those blogs, right? Arguing, this is our position, this is why this is wrong, so on and so forth. And listen, it's important. We ought to analyze what's happening in our world. We ought to think critically about them. But while we've spent our time and energy critiquing these movements, calling out social justice warriors or Marxists or whatever labels you might want to throw around, have we neglected to do justice all along? Have we gotten really good at arguing but yet set back and didn't ever do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God? Have we left behind the weightier matters? I'll let us consider that as a community together but it's precisely at this point that we've all got a problem. Because every single one of us, I can say confidently in this room, every single one of us has fallen short of this great requirement from the Lord, haven't we? I mean, have we done justice? Have we loved kindness? Have we walked humbly with God? All of us have fallen short of that. The people of Israel did, the Pharisees did, and we still do today. But here's the thing we have that the people of Israel didn't have and the Pharisees couldn't see. We have a better motivator for justice. We have a better inside motivator heart issue. We, we have a better understanding of that because of what Jesus has done. You see, we need a better motivator than duty. We need a better motivator than a trendy hashtag or to keep a tribe happy. We need to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ to see why these things really matter. And listen, we've got some incredible opportunities here at the King's Church. Okay, we're not trying to fall into the trap of the Pharisees, where we talk a good talk and then don't invest our time and our resources and our energy into things related to justice, okay? So we have some fun things that we're getting ready to jump into. But here's the thing, I don't want us to jump into it because we're guilty. 
I don't want us to jump into it because we have a duty to do so. I don't want us to jump into it so we can check that box on our resume and, oh, look at that church, look at the cool things they're doing. No, I want us to jump wholeheartedly into it because we have been completely transformed by the gospel. And that is where we have to end our time today is justice in God's son. How does the gospel, how does the good news about Jesus, that's the gospel, how does the good news about him help us as we stand condemned before all of this? Well, let's consider Jesus. He is the imagination of God's character in the flesh. In the Old Testament, God clearly identified with the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, didn't he? Well, in the New Testament, God literally identifies with them. Jesus comes in the incarnation, God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God, and he lived in poverty, born into a poor family. He identified with the oppressed and the outcasts, and his mission included bringing God's vision of justice to bear in God's people. I mean, just consider his inaugural sermon. It's his very first introduction. It's like the opening press conference for the new coach, right? It's the thesis statement for the paper. It's the inauguration speech for the new president. You get the idea. It's an important speech. He's trying to set forth, this is what I am here to do. And in Luke 4, he stands up in a synagogue in Nazareth. He opens the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61. He didn't have chapters, but we know it was chapter 61, okay? Opens the scroll, and he quotes it. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is a reference to the year of Jubilee, by the way. Which, guess what? The people of Israel, they never followed it. There's no evidence they ever did the year of Jubilee. And then Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, that is the kingdom with the king. That's the kingdom with the king. The king who is for justice and upholds it perfectly. But what they couldn't understand was how he was going to bring all of that about. After all, in mere moments after those verses, they're going to try to throw him off of a cliff. They can't get their mind around how this justice was going to come about. And what no one expected was that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to fulfill Isaiah 61 by taking the righteous judgment of God upon himself on the cross. Though he was God in the flesh, he would bear the right and just vengeance of God on himself, not bring it upon the people. And that's why any conversation about justice and the Bible and Jesus, it has to get to the cross. The cross is where the weightier things of God all collide together. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they are seen most profoundly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider this quote from Fleming Rutledge. I think she nails this. It's so helpful. She says, by becoming one of the poor who was deprived of his rights, by dying as one of those robbed of justice, God's son submitted to the utmost extremity of humiliation, entering into total solidarity with those who are without help. And more astonishingly, however, he underwent helplessness and humiliation not only for the victimized, but also for the perpetrators. Who would have thought that the same God who passed judgment 
calling down woe upon the religious establishment would come under his own judgment and woe. Perfect justice is wrought in the self-offering of the Son, who alone of all human beings was perfectly righteous. If we want to understand perfect justice, that last line is it. Because the cross is where all of this idea of justice in God's kingdom is seen perfectly. It's perfect justice, as she noted. From an earthly perspective, Jesus faced the height of injustice, didn't he? He is the perfect, sinless, righteous one, the only one who could truly say that. But yet he's condemned to death on a Roman torture and execution device as a criminal. But yet, think about it, this crucifixion, it was punitive justice, wasn't it? It was sin-bearing. Jesus dies in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that, what, we might become the righteousness of God. You know what another word for righteousness is? Justice. It's sin-bearing. It's punitive. It creates a new society, a new structure of people who are saved by his mercy and relate to one another on the basis of his grace. It's restorative justice. As Paul said in that verse I just quoted, 2 Corinthians 5, we who had no record that was any good, it was tarnished before God, are given the righteous record of Jesus. We get his righteousness. That restores us before God. And is that generous? You better believe it. It's a generous justice beyond all measure. It is all grace. And Jesus does this for the victimized and the perpetrators. He does it for both ends. I mean, who does that? That shatters all of our human categories for justice, doesn't it? And it's so critical that we realize that all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are perpetrators against that. But yet Jesus dies in our place. What does that produce within us? Humility. If we want to walk humbly before our Lord, we realize we had a hand in it, but yet Jesus loved us enough, he still went through that. And that creates humility. I remember as a kid, I was maybe seven or eight years old, I remember feeling the height of injustice in my young life one Christmas morning. I got done opening all of these awesome gifts and presents that I did not deserve nor buy, right? My parents were generous in that way. And after I got done, I was angry. You know why I was angry? I was angry because my younger brother, I thought, got way more presents than I did that Christmas. Right? I'm furious. I'm pouting in the corner. I'm sure I've missed the fact that my toys as the older brother were more sophisticated, more cool, right? more expensive. I'm just looking at it on a basic weight scale. He got way more than I did. How dare this? The injustice. And in that moment, I'm failing to acknowledge all that has been freely given to me, all that has been sacrificially bought for me, all that has been provided by parents who love me, and instead I am sitting in a self-righteous, pouting mood in the corner of Christmas morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, far too often we respond to issues of justice just like that. You see, the cross creates a humility that the world can't offer, a kind of humility that seems to be missing in this justice conversation. There's a tendency to act in great self-righteousness toward those we deem on the wrong side of the issue, or towards those who are the perpetrators. But the cross reminds us that God does not overlook injustice, and he creates a way for righteousness to come up both for the victimized and the oppressor. It creates a new kind of person one who's been transformed by his grace. You see, when we get swept up in that story, 
when we realize the depth of the love and the mercy of a God who did not give us what we deserve, but showed us mercy and grace upon grace, it transforms us. That's what the Pharisees missed. Right, the next two verses, we don't have time to look at it. What does it say? You're just whitewashed tombs. You got the outside all sparkly and clean. Inside, you're dead. Inside, you have not had an experience with the grace of the gospel. And they're not alone. Over and over again, we miss the good news of the gospel in this conversation. But something changes when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we realize what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And when we have an encounter with the justifying grace of God, it actually makes us just. It actually produces justice within us. We see it in the early church. Move past the Pharisees, move past Jesus. We get to Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four. You know what those communities sound a lot like? Old Testament Israel, except they actually lived it out. What's the comment in Acts two and Acts four? There were no needy people among them. No one was being overlooked. No one was being dehumanized. All were being treated fairly. They split up their stuff and took care of needs as they came up. They were doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with their God. See, brothers and sisters, I want us to be a people of justice. I want us to be a people who mirror that very character and nature of God but we will not get there if we, do not got swept, if we do not get swept up in the glorious news of the gospel. God has not dealt with us as we have deserved. We have been shown grace and mercy, and because we are justified, we get to be a people who freely, as an act of worship, because we want to do it, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. What would it look like for us to step more fully into that I hope we have messy conversations on the other end because I think that's precisely where Jesus wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, there's more here than we even have time to think through today, but my hope and prayer is that we would be a people here that are swept up and just in tune with the good news of the gospel as it relates to this issue of justice. Jesus, thank you that you came and you faced the height of injustice. You died a death in our place, even though you were perfect. And you have freely and graciously given us your perfect record, your righteousness, your justice. So I pray that we as a people would, Lord, look for opportunities to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly, that we would open our eyes to see people as you see them, and as our world is talking about this issue today as justice is the nonstop conversation right now, would you help us to bear witness to the king, to the prince of peace, to the one whose throne will be established on the foundation of justice and righteousness, and it will last forever. Help us to be a preview of that coming kingdom and draw us to repentance and your kindness where we need to repent. We pray that in Jesus' name.